0: Next week's drama on one, shouting out silence, written by Louise Lewis and devised in collaboration with Goretti Slavin, tracks the last hours in the life of Lizzie. As a haunted past seeps into her consciousness, Lizzie remembers a past she fought hard to forget. The play was developed after visiting the hospice and witnessing the amazing patient-centred care given by the staff and families. The following programme was recorded during that visit to the Galway Hospice and features the voices of Breda Casserly, pastoral care chaplain Therese O'Reilly and Nicola Purcell, clinical nurse manager
1: My name is Breda Casserly and I'm the pastoral care chaplain at Galway Hospice Yeah, my name is Therese, Therese
2: O'Reilly and um, I'm the eldest of a family of seven I'm originally from County Galway South Galway. and uh, But I've been living in Dublin for the past 40 years. Uh, I was a primary teacher. Uh, two years ago, my brother, Sean, became ill uh, very suddenly with um, a brain tumour. And he was uh, lucky to be taken to Beaumont Hospital, and they did a surgery. and But the prognosis was going to be, yeah, it's one of those, It's I can't think of the name of it, but it's something GB4, it's a serious brain tumour. Uh, so he was given 18 months to two years.
3: My name is Nicola Purcell. Um, I'm one of the clinical nurse managers here at Galway Hospice. I started here 20 years ago this year. Um, before that I worked in a hospice in London for eight years. Um, before that I did my training and prior to that I worked in Belford Hospice for about a year um, as a care assistant um, and that was my introduction to palliative care. Fell in love with it then and have never really left it.
1: My role as chaplain is to support the patients emotionally and spiritually. Very often our patients are defined by their disease and it has become their identity sometimes. They've spent a long time in hospitals, in waiting rooms, having treatments. And somehow their identity as a human being, as a person, is lost in that So my role as a pastoral care chaplain is to bring that person out again. Let it be Mary or Michael or Tom or Joan and see the person emerge and and to look at what gave meaning to their life before they became ill, before their diagnosis and looking at that. And sometimes as a chaplain, I will do a life review with them. We will look back over their lives where they came from, what their childhood was like, what their profession was, and everything that led up to this diagnosis and how difficult that diagnosis is for them. Um, Sean is 57 this year, and
2: so he's married to Maggie, and he has a daughter, Roshin, who's 10. He's had a long, busy life with a lot of things, a very interesting life in some ways, but... um, He just certainly thought he was going to be living a lot longer than this. Huge energy. He still has it even now. And um, uh, so the past 18 months were about making memories with Maggie and Roisin, doing things that they might not have done before, or, you know, everything had more significance, do you know? Years ago here, we had a gentleman who
3: knew he wouldn't be alive for his daughter's first communion. Um, He wouldn't be alive for her wedding down the line he was thinking of all the different milestones. So we organised with his family that they would bring in a load of communion dresses, and that he would be part of helping her to choose her communion dress. So that while he might not be here for the occasion or the event, that he would be involved as much as possible. And it's that kind of patient-centredness, doing what the person wants, what's important to them. Um, And sometimes that can be difficult, I think, for doctors and nurses in this environment. Um, that there's a medicalised way and a nursing way of doing things, but sometimes that's not what the patient wants. So we have to balance that. Um, As nurses often, it's about doing what will relieve the patient's energy for them to have the energy to do what's important to them. Back before Christmas,
2: the tumour started to get active again. And uh, so he's had a second round to Beaumont just a couple of months ago, but... They could only take about 30% of the tumour and um, back to Galway Hospital and talk of more chemo. But anyway, that didn't work out. So so we're here now and he just came to the hospice uh, about 10 days ago. We couldn't tell him that we're at hospice stage, you know, because he was fully with it and fully, I'll take the next dose of chemo and I'll get another 18 months, you know, that type of
1: situation. That's what he was thinking. Very often, our patients can have spent quite a few years waiting. They have been waiting for test results. They have been waiting for treatment to be complete. They've been waiting simply for someone to pick them up to take them to a hospital appointment. And they've been waiting to find a bed in the hospice. And finally, they come. And sometimes the waiting is still not over. They come, they're waiting for their family to arrive. They're waiting for the doctor to come. They're waiting for myself, the pastoral care chaplain. Um,
3: working in London was a fantastic experience. Fantastic team of people um, in the hospice um, in St John's Wood. Um, we had squirrels climbing along the fences, and you know the patients looking out. I remember one patient saying, um, "The school kids in the school next door were out running around playground. You know, all of a, it's silence, and then all of a sudden the bell rings, and it's just chaos in in the yard." And she said that it's wonderful to hear that noise every day because I know I'm still alive. I'm still part of the world and I'm still alive. That's part of the beauty here in Galway as well. It struck me that we have a school next door and some days when the windows are open and you hear the bell go and again it's chaos in the schoolyard and the kids and that people know that they're
2: still very much part of the world. Just being here first of all and knowing that Sean is at end days. He's six years younger than me. And uh, and Andy Ellis in the family. And, you know, there's always that thing about your younger ones. You know, now we've already experienced two losses in our family way back the years. So we were a family of seven, and now we're five, and now it looks like we'll be four. And the two in Australia that just went back are the younger ones, and then there's the middle layer, and it's Sean's. Anyway, you know, so it's, it's difficult to. <sighs> It's hard to get your head around it, you know, in some ways. But uh, he's been an alcoholic and he's had bipolar and um, and he's a tormented kind of a soul in some ways. Um, and he still is, and we see bits of it here, you know. But um, uh, so you... You know the old programming that we had in this country. You know everything. You blame this on that God that's out there somewhere. <laughs> but I'm glad to say I, I've I've been lucky to get past a lot of that, and I and I have a different perception of what life is, and you know, and about everything that we experience, and we're here. We, we are here to experience, and we're here to grow, whatever way we can. You know, and if we if if we get information, we have to use it. So. And Sean would, would go with a lot of that as well, you know, so, so I feel anyway, back to the hospice, he's in the right place, you know, and and I just, I'm so glad he's here because, because I feel the spiritual and the, and the caring, that, you can't put a word on it, you know, but it's, it's a caring that's different to the rest, you know, they hold him, they see him, they're hugely professional, but so caring, you know, um, and, the, and, and they hold all of us, not just Sean.
3: Yeah. One of my fondest memories here in the hospice is about 15 years ago, um, a gentleman who had three young children, um, and he was here, he was going to be here for Christmas, um, and he was going to stay here. Um, so the kids stayed here for Christmas, sleeping bags on the floor in Dad's room, Santa came here, all of that. And for us to be even as, as carers to be witness to that and to see family life, and it's still going on, and for us to step back um, and not jump in so quickly, to let them be the family. Um, If they want to close the door and have a good old row, or um, kisses and cuddles or whatever, close the door and let people do what they want to do, but we're there to support them. Um,
1: That's what I enjoy about working in hospice. And I suppose to give a very good example of waiting a young patient that we had in recent times... She had been planning and waiting towards her wedding, all the plans in place, waiting for that day. But of course, her disease or her illness took over, and and it was difficult for her to keep that date. But in that time of waiting, I remember her sharing her story with me, one late afternoon with the curtains drawn, and tearfully saying, ''Breda, I have been waiting to get married.'' And I'm not sure if the time will allow it now, because my time here at hospice is limited. And listening to her story of all the years of waiting for this goal and putting a plan into place and saying, what would you like to happen? And then going back to the team and talking about this dream or this goal of this young patient. And finally, as a team, we did organise our wedding and we finally had it here in the hospice chapel. And for her, that dream, that that longing, that waiting to have her wedding day actually came to fruition, and it was a joyful day. In fact, it was a bittersweet day for all of us staff as we stood side by side on the corridor as she walked down, her husband waiting for her in the hospice chapel, and she took her vows. And sadly, she had to return to her hospice room. But then her waiting continued to see her photographs the next morning, to see her video. And I think her story was complete. Her waiting was over. And finally, I think life and all of us and her family and her new husband gave her permission that now she could go. Her waiting was over. Her journey through this life ended and her new journey into eternal life would begin. And and I know he's content here. I mean, a part of him is
2: very upset and like he's known he's had cancer and he was fairly accepting of it over the past 18 months but now because of the pressure of the tumour and the medication and they're trying to manage it he's at times quite incoherent other times disturbed. Last night he was calm which was it's lovely you know a blessing and I sat with him and he sort of said will I ever get up the bog again. That has been his his salvation for the past two years you know so he's been able to walk up the bog so last night sitting down in the room he said to me do you think will I ever walk in the bog again on my own and I said I don't think so Sean you know and then wasn't I unfortunate and I said maybe but you've always been such an active man and now you have to sit and be easy you know and so you have to learn because it's different so I have to I mean his energy would would knock you over you know one of those kind of people it's just a strange thing but and you'd want to be able for them you know um often i think it's because
3: people are in bed or they're sitting by their bed the days sometimes can be a bit long for patients but it gives them time to think whether they like it or not sometimes it's their mind is going and they think about the past and what they've done what they haven't done regrets um and then about the future um so Sometimes
1: things come up that people haven't mentioned or discussed um, in years or ever. That's one patient in another room right beside her. There's another patient who is waiting also. And I suppose using pastoral care language, we would call that waiting. That in-between stage is called a liminal space. It's almost a grey area. Sometimes there's very little energy happening in that area. The family are waiting Their goal is to see their patient or their loved one live well until the final moment. But that waiting, it it demands energy. It demands that somebody can sit in silence. And very often it's my role to talk with the families and to help them understand that they're not merely visiting their loved one at this time, they're actually keeping vigil at their side. And that waiting, that vigil... It's quiet, it's silent, but it can be full of energy. There are no words being spoken, but it's almost like a life of itself. But when you come into the hospice, you don't know what to expect.
2: I didn't know what to expect, really. I just knew that um, that this is the end stage for Sean, and, uh, and after that, I didn't know. Because, because I, I've read some of the Tibetan stuff, you know, the Tibetan book of living and dying, and they talk about the, the, the Tibetans and the, the Buddhists, and they all believe the importance of the transition and how, you, how death happens and how you go and the need for reverence and quiet and
3: time. Patients don't want nurses with long faces and, um, yeah. you know, miserable and isn't everything so sad... I suppose the difference for us is that we look at it that this is what we're here for. This is our role. Um, our role is end-of-life care in the period before that. Um, so we don't feel a failure when somebody dies. When somebody dies peacefully and comfortably with the people they want around them, that for us is a job job well done.
0: You've been listening to a programme which was recorded during a visit to the Galway Hospice and featured the voices of Rita Casserly, pastoral care chaplain, Therese O'Reilly and Nicola Purcell, clinical nurse manager. The programme was compiled by Goretti Slaven. Sound supervision and outside broadcast engineer was Seamus O'Mortha. Drama on One would like to thank Mary Nash and the family of the late Sean Leonard, especially Maggie and Roisin. To find out more about the hospice, go to hospicefoundation.ie. This research into the lives of those in hospice care inspired next week's drama on One, "Shouting Out Silence," written by Louise Lewis and devised in collaboration with Goretti Slaven. rteie one.